0: Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, Join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. It's so good to have you here. Now, today, I thought we'd do something a little different. And instead of me asking the questions... I decided to invite along a dear friend of mine. Georgia is my oldest friend in the entire world. We actually met when we were nine years old at school. And she was recently here in Melbourne visiting me from her hometown of Hamburg, Germany, where she's been living for the past 12 years. Now, when Georgia flew back to Australia at the beginning of this year, It was actually the first time we'd seen each other in over two years due to the global pandemic. Now, to give you guys some context, the last time we'd been together, I was still drinking, I was still married, and I was living in Sydney. So to say that a lot has changed would be an understatement. So naturally Georgia had a lot of questions about my new life in sobriety and when she was here last we were driving along and I thought as she was asking these questions I thought this would be a great episode for a podcast as I have no doubt that there'll be some of you listening who have similar questions. So without further ado I'd like to introduce my Ask Me Anything episode with my BFF Georgia.
1: Thanks, Ash. This is indeed very, very special for me to be sitting here and talking to you on your podcast. Um, I did think of a couple of questions before I came, and I think we're going to, like, correct me if I'm wrong, we're going to do this as I'm interviewing you rather than the other way around. That is correct. (laughs) Yes, I am in the hot seat today, so (laughs) take it away. Well, I want to kick it off with the question that you mentioned, which kind of sparked this idea, and that was the higher power, and specifically, I heard you referencing this in one of of your other episodes, um, that you, through your journey with recovery, you now believe in God. And I have known you for a very long time and I've never known you to be religious. So this was very shocking to me. And I wanted to know how does that come about? Is that part of the journey? Is that something that is now an, an active part of your life? Tell me a bit about it, please. Sure.
0: So as I have mentioned to you before part of my sobriety involves being part of a 12-step fellowship Uh, and in that fellowship one of the key elements is coming to terms with a concept of your own higher power and the idea behind this really is that when I was drinking I was managing and controlling my life and I was ending up in really bad places, really bad situations and The more I tried to control my life, the worse it got. And so, coming into recovery and being asked to hand my will and my life over to a higher power is really about understanding that I'm not God. So, first and foremost, The term for me, God, doesn't necessarily have to have religious connotations. And that's why we say it can be a higher power of your own understanding. So for some people, that might be a tree. It might be the ocean. It might be the universe. It could be other people in the room. It just needs to not be you. So, you know, growing up, I wasn't religious, as you know, even though I went to an Anglican girl's school We went to an Anglican girls' (laughs) school. (laughs) We went to an Anglican girls' school. And as you remember, we were in church every week and being part of the choir for me, I sung a lot of religious music and hymns and was very immersed in that world. However, because I understood God at that time to be a punishing God, it wasn't something that I related to. In fact, if anything, I probably rebelled against it. I didn't really give the concept of God much thought in my teenage to early adult years. But when I came into recovery and they started speaking about God, it was interesting. I actually didn't have a lot of reservations or pushback towards the concept. I know for a lot of people that's not the case. And for some people, they've had quite negative experiences with God and with church and with religion growing up. So. You know, I need to preface it is each to their own and everybody's journey and experience is going to be quite different. But for me, I was quite willing. By the time I came into recovery, I was so smashed and so broken that I was prepared to do anything. So when it was suggested to me that I needed to start connecting to a higher power through prayer and meditation, it's something that I adopted really early on in the piece and I totally credit it to... The reason I'm I'm managing my recovery today. When I first started doing meetings, I remember listening to other people talk about the relationship they had to their higher power, and I was really self critical. Like the inner critic inside my head was telling me I was wrong, I couldn't get it, I was fake, I was phony. Um, but what I kept telling myself was If the people that have trod this path before you have managed to get it, then just do the suggested things and hopefully that will eventually land. And that's absolutely been the case. So in the beginning, when I was praying, it did feel a little bit like lip service, but over time, that relationship with my higher power has developed and it continues to develop on a daily basis. And the other thing I should point out is that whilst I use the word God, for me, it's just. The simplest way of explaining it but my higher power isn't a man in the sky with a white beard it's an energy it's everywhere and it's within me as well and so when I'm praying I'm talking to this energy or I'm talking to God and then when I'm meditating it's God talking back to me and it's in those moments of quiet meditation and reflection that I'm able to connect to my inner knowing, which is something that when I was using and drinking, I wasn't able to do that. I remember people always saying to me, you know, that throwaway line of trust your gut. And I'd always think, how do you do that? Because my gut literally didn't talk to me. Like I didn't have intuition. I wasn't able to feel within and find answers. So interesting. I think if because for so many years, because I was trying to mask the pain of trauma and experiences, my way to process was to numb out. And I think to be able to connect to your intuition and be really led by self, you, you need to have clarity and you need to be present. So it's almost like over the last two years, it's been this daily practice of slowly removing the armour the work I do within the fellowship with my sponsor, um, going through the 12 steps, all of that is this process of removing armor. And then once that re- that armor is removed, you're left with self. And then you're a lot more open to be able to receive that message and that knowing.
1: But what's really interesting is that you speak of meditation and as I told you previously, I'm now a big fan of the practice of meditation. But you speak of meditation and praying in the same context. Is that for you like meditation praying? Is that one thing now, or like, because my concept of praying is what or what I know of it is when people are down on like their knees before their bed with their hands together praying up to the man in 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 the sky with the beard. Mm but you yeah how how does that work for you then is is meditation and praying the same thing for you now a bit no so, not no. at
0: all but i do most of the time do them at the same time so for me prayer as i said is about talking to god and connecting to my higher power and a lot of the time when i'm praying i'm asking for guidance and i'm asking for direction So I'll ask God to direct my thoughts, and I will ask God to show me how I can best be of service, how I can show up in the world, and I'm seeking that guidance. Meditation is that quiet moment of reflection where I go in. For me, in my routine, I'm a very routine-based person, it just works that I get up in the morning, I meditate, I do my 20 minutes in the morning, and then at the end of that, I pray. So that's what works for me. But for a lot of people, I think particularly in early recovery, especially if prayer is a foreign concept, you just get down on your knees and you pray, <laughs> you know, like, and it can be at any minute of any time of the day. But generally, you know, we'd recommend always starting the day and finishing the day with prayer. You know, prayer is a great Um, opportunity to also acknowledge what you're thankful for and so you can really practice gratitude in that moment but for me like I said it is it's 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 handing it over and it's asking for that direction which kind of goes back to what I was saying about when I was out there drinking I was directionless and so part of handing it over is saying hey god I don't have the answers, can you show me? Show me how I can best show up in the world today. How can I be the best version of me, the best human? How can I give to others? And
1: you keep um, using a lot of that, I don't know how else to call it, biblical vocabulary. So you said the word God, but at the start you mentioned higher power and the higher power or higher being spirit is a really easy concept for me to grasp. Mm. But the, you keep referring to these biblical terms, which throws me a little bit. What's the reason for that? Why – I understand now the reasoning behind it that it is not the man in the beard or with the beard, um, but why is it the word God used and not a higher power? Honestly,
0: I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's um, – they're interchangeable. One – for me, one means the other. It's just you can say God or you can say higher power. And God just rolls off the tongue a little more easily for me. Okay, that makes sense. I get that.
1: (laughs) I get that. But, like, yeah, it throws me every time that you say it because maybe it is because of how we grew up and what school we went to, that that is really just a solid biblical thing.
0: And I think that what you're saying is probably echoed by a really large proportion of the population. You know, history hasn't always painted a very good picture of religion and God and you know, the idea that God is a punishing God. So I do, I hear you and I think it can be triggering for a lot of people. I guess that's part of the reason we're here today and we're talking about this because I hope that people can start to understand that, you know, it doesn't have to just mean that, that it can be interchangeable with this concept of a higher power or the universal spirit. You know, it's really up to each individual and what their own conception is.
1: Do you find that a lot of people who uh, you're now like in the program with, I think that's the correct terminology, um, do you find that everyone has adopted this relationship with a higher power? Is this a very common thing or are there some people who this is a part of the process that they don't want to be part of?
0: I can't speak for other people but what I can say is that everybody I know that I've connected with within the fellowship, they do foster this relationship, and I do believe that it, it's an integral part of recovery, and it's one of the key components that will make or break somebody's sobriety, because it's in those times of absolute pain and suffering and bewilderment that you can turn to this higher power and say, "Help!" Yeah, wow. Knowing that it's you're not alone. It's not up to you to have to get this. Like there's something out there that's bigger than us. The universe has your back. Like you need to truly wholeheartedly believe that to have that moment of surrender to be able to then face life on life's terms, which is what sobriety is all about. I often talk about sobriety is an incredibly painful journey at times because you don't have anything to numb the edges. Like you have to feel everything. And that can be, <laughs> <laughs> totally, that can be incredibly blissful or it can, it can honestly feel like your insides are on the outsides, um, like a skin cap, like it can just really hurt sometimes. And it's in those moments that um, that relationship with a higher power can really help get you through.
1: It's so interesting. I find this, yeah, just that concept as well, like I said, because it's come from the the place that I've known you my entire life and that's, was never something that was even like yeah spoken about or whatever. But I want to grab back to the to the point about or like the the topic that's also I've been wondering. It's actually a funny one. We started off with the really heavy stuff, so we've just <laughs> gone like we jumped in with, with the religion topic. Love it. <laughs> I'm going to go down to an easy one. Um, maybe it's a bit of a funny one. So in we all have seen the movies where people go to these meetings and they get chips. Or they get little coins or I don't know what they are. Is that a real thing? Do people (laughs) get these chips and where are yours? I want to see them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, yes, they are real. (laughs) They are real and it depends what meeting you go to is the answer to that. So, um, chips are designed to – or tokens, they can sometimes be – they are there to celebrate the milestones. So in recovery, it's really important to acknowledge and celebrate the milestones because it's a re- moment of reflection to acknowledge how far you've come. Uh, it's a motivation to keep on going and it and it helps you to show up. I remember getting my first chip at re- in rehab. I went to a meeting and I was given a 24-hour chip and I still have that. Chip today. Why I re- hope you're not shown me. Oh my god, it's <laughs> in my bedside table. We can I'll show you. Um, later, later. Later, later. <laughs> yeah, and I remember, oh God, in early recovery, every minute is a miracle. So to get 24 hours up f- for somebody that couldn't do that alone, that in and of itself is something to celebrate. And then So the chips, you get 24 hours, then you celebrate 30 days, Mm. we celebrate 60 days, we celebrate 90 days, we then move on to six months, and then a year, and then after that, it's every year.
1: Oh, okay. I really like that you told me what intervals it was, Mm -hmm. I was I was hanging out for that. Yeah. But so when you then go to these meetings, and do you, like, is there a a specific way like how the meeting structure do mm. you celebrate the people who have just gotten their first 24-hour chip do you celebrate the people like who, who talks and what's decided what's spoken about or mm. like how does that work
0: so every meeting has a different format so it really depends what kind of meeting you went to so as I was mentioning I received a 24-hour chip because the meeting that I went to when I was in rehab was a chip meeting but the majority or in fact all of the meetings I go to now they're not chip meetings so I actually have an ever received a chip for my one year or my two year now I could go and seek one out if I wanted to and look I probably should but yeah I am when you do go to a chip meeting it's really beautiful generally uh, the format of a meeting um, again the format changes from meeting to meeting each meeting is completely autonomous um, so they can run the meeting how they choose to and there are traditions within the fellowship that are the guidelines of all of all of that. Um, but the generally there'll be somebody who sits at the front and leads the meeting. there may be a guest speaker who comes and shares their experience, strength and hope for you know somewhere around 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes. And then generally what happens is that person that's sitting in the chair at the front will start to call upon people to share and then they might share for three to five minutes and generally it will be either their experience, strength and hope, it might be from a passage in a book that we've read or it could be a topic that was created by the guest speaker. So depending on how long the meeting is, whether it's an hour or a 90 minute meeting, a number of people will be asked to share. So if it was a chip meeting, generally after that, you know, in the final five to 10 minutes of the meeting, um, they might ask if it was anybody's, anybody's reached a milestone. And the other thing that we celebrate are, we call them birthdays. So if you do reach one, two, any annual celebration, then you have a birthday. and um, We sing happy birthday, which is <laughs> Oh my God, that's really <laughs> kind of cute. <laughs> I think it is. Some <laughs> people find it a little strange, but you definitely get used to it. <laughs> okay. So this is, uh, sadly,
1: not a very positive question, but it's still very interesting to me. I wonder what happens when someone out of the your community or the fellowship at these meetings um, do people have what they called? Oh, were you oh relapse? Yeah, relapse. Thank you. Yeah, what happens to people? Yeah, what happens when someone relapses? Like, have you had an experience with that?
0: I'm really blessed that I personally don't have relapse in my story. When I finally made the decision to get sober. As I've mentioned, I went through a rehab and I was just lucky enough that the message landed for me at that time. Relapse is um, a very, very common part of a lot of people's stories. And, you know, one of the things that we say is you just keep coming back. Mm -hmm. You know, these rooms and this community of people, it is such a welcoming space and nobody should ever feel that they have failed or that they have disappointed people when they've relapsed. The most important thing is, is that they're honest, that they share it with the people that they've connected to and that they get back to a meeting.
1: That's so interesting. Yeah, well, I, you know, obviously, I don't want you to relapse, no, because you've turned into the most uh, turned into you always were, but I've seen you now how you are in comparison to when you were struggling, and it's beautiful. So we definitely don't want you relapsing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but um, so this community, you have a very strong network. You've built up a network. I know you've told me you've gone out for dinner with um, you know, a couple of the people that you've met at these uh, meetings, and is. The network part of the process.
0: Huge, huge, yeah. There's three really integral parts to this program and the the unity side is so important. Um, you know, everything that is spoken about in this program is, is we. It's a we program. You know, you don't do this alone. You don't get sober alone. It's so important. You know, it's one of the hardest things I think to do at the beginning is – you're really encouraged to get other people's phone numbers and to call them. Oh. And, you know, that's just so against the way I was programmed, you know, particularly towards the end and I, my drinking was, you know, I, I began isolating in my drinking, um, towards the end and so the last thing I wanted to do was reach out to a stranger and ask for help like that just was so counterintuitive I couldn't imagine asking a stranger for help I could barely ask my friends and family for help but as I said I truly believe that success in recovery is your willingness to do the suggested things and when I was told to do this I just did it now that doesn't always mean that these people are going to become your best friends and, you know, you're going to skip off into the sunset together. But what you do is you're there for each other. You support each other. You know, if someone's not at a meeting, you check in on the people so that they know they're not alone, that they don't have to feel alone and that there's always going to be a place that they can come to that will help them and heal them.
1: That's so, yeah, really interesting. Do do you also feel... Like, is this journey for you the eh, – like, this is the end? Do you – or do you think
0: – This is just the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> <No>.
1: <laughs> very good, very good. No, but I mean, like, we, do you think you'll ever get to a point where you have one drink and be fine? Or is that something that's out of the realms of possibility? Like, are you just now, like, sober forever? Does that make sense? Mm. Like, like, Or is this kind of thing that, you know, people – when I was trying to give up smoking, I kept thinking, oh, yeah, I'll have like one one a day and that'll, that'll be fine. But I couldn't do that because if I had one, I'd want more kind of thing. So mm-hmm. what's, what's the deal with that? Are there people that enjoy drinking in moderation? Do you know what I'm trying to get at? Is, is there a possibility of maybe having a glass of champagne at uh, somebody's wedding or is it just uh, sober forever kind of thing? Or is it too hard to answer?
0: (laughs) 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 So it's funny. I was having this conversation with someone just the other day. I personally don't think I can answer that question right now because for me, I can't see into the future. What I know now, right in this moment, is that I I identify with being an alcoholic. And what that means is that when I take a drink, it sets off a craving and I find it really hard to stop. So the idea of drinking for me is absolutely not an option right now. Another thing I know is that over time, as the distance between your last drink and your present moment grows further and further apart, the mind starts to tell you that absolutely you'd be okay just to have one drink. And I think that's why... It is so important for so many people with decades of sobriety that they keep coming to these meetings because it's where you hear the message. You're reminded of what things were like when they were really bad. For me right now, the changes that I've experienced in my life over the past two years and where I'm, where I'm at and where I stand today, like there's there's no way I'd want to pick up a drink and go back there. I'm also somebody that understands that life has ebbs and flows and I I, like I said I can't predict the future but for me right now the answer would be no I will never have a drink again.
1: Oh that yeah that's that's very very interesting because you think that like it was you know this is also just my outside perception is if you know you control that kind of excessive overuse of alcohol or an abuse of alcohol and Maybe getting to a point, yeah, where one glass of champagne or something is fine, but if it's, yeah, but I guess that's not really part of the journey then, you kind of commit to this for well, for life, if you, yeah, you commit
0: well, to it. Well, it's more like, so we define alcohol as being a disease, and it's a disease, it's a disease that lives in our mind. Now, that disease wants to kill me drunk or sober, so... The whole idea when you're an alcoholic is that your mind will always be telling you to have a drink. But the difference is that when I have a drink and when you have a drink, very different things happen. Mm -hmm. The unmanageability that was my life when I was in active addiction, that's not the experience for a normal drinker. So the reality is it wouldn't just be one champagne. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that is said in the rooms is this is not a disease that's curable. It's something that you can learn to live with and that's where you implement the steps and you live a program. It's almost like when I stopped drinking, I started creating a life that I actually wouldn't want to drink in. So what I mean by that is my life and what it looked like when I was still drinking was such a mess. It was so painful. I had to drink to feel better. My life is so good now that the idea of actually taking or ingesting a substance that took me out of my mind and body like I I I'm repulsed by that for me. You know, anyone else can do whatever they want and there's absolutely no judgment. But for me personally, I don't want to be out of my body. If anything, I want to be more and more and more in my body. So you don't get cravings, do you? No, do you have like so for me, I absolutely did. Before I gave up, like, oh, my God, I would crave alcohol every day and I would drink every day. But one of the incredible things about getting into recovery and developing that relationship with a higher power is the rec- the cravings were removed.
1: Oh, so that came through the higher power, you think, that, that kind of like disassociation, like you viewed yourself at a different point. So.
0: I think what happened was – in the early days when I was still craving and finding it really challenging, I prayed and I asked God to remove the craving. And I can't remember exactly when it happened, but um, it just, it left me. And that's just insanity to even comprehend because I could, you know, when I was in the last couple of years, I would wake up every single morning and tell myself, I'm not going to drink today. Like, i convinced, black and blue, that I wouldn't pick up a drink. You mean
1: before you went into rehab?
0: Yeah. Yep. And I would get to about midday and then all of a sudden that disease, that, you know, that voice in my head would start saying, oh, it wasn't really that bad. Oh, nah, you'll be right. Oh, we can, you know, we can always give up tomorrow. And then by, you know... By the time I finished work, there was a drink in my hand. And that cycle and, – and, and it was never one. It was, you know, the bottle and then whatever else I could get my hands on. And that cycle repeated day after day after day for two years. And what that highlights to me is that my decision to stop – I had to be willing to put myself through the process of rehab and then really commit myself to the program. But something else took that away – like I, When I was in control, I had a bottle in my hand every day. So that process of handing it over enabled me to let go and, and yeah, the cravings were, were removed. And now, honestly, I've come to a place of neutrality. So it's like if we hang out together or I hang out with other people, like I'm – and look, I can't speak for everyone, but for me, I'm totally comfortable being around alcohol I don't want it, I don't crave it and yeah, like even just saying that out loud, it still amazes me knowing where I was in like such a short time ago.
1: It is amazing because, you know, we've now been to the one or other social engagement here already and... You do, you do it like with uh, alcohol free beer and everything and, and you don't change and it's I think it's fantastic because you know if I'm trying to put myself in your shoes, I would think that that would be the hardest point is to be at a social engagement and have that need have that need to have it you know, that would be a huge hurdle or maybe it was at the start. But Yeah, yeah.
0: you're exactly right. I think at the start I certainly found it challenging and look, it was a really unique position for me because when I came out of rehab, the pandemic hit. So I essentially went into lockdown. And now when I share that with some people, they're like, oh my God, how did you manage not drinking during lockdown? But for me, in a way, it actually created this almost like bubble wrap environment where i was able to avoid temptation so as long as it wasn't in the house i was okay and there were you know there were no weddings there were no birthday parties there were no bars open so i wasn't faced with that temptation for the first six months of my recovery so i was really able to solidify and protect my stance on this and really immerse myself in the program so that by the time that temptation rolled around I had equipped myself with enough tools to be able to face those challenges and not feel overwhelmed by them
1: what would be an example of one such tool
0: okay so you mentioned before like alcohol-free drinks now this isn't right and some people have a really strong stance on on those drinks saying that if you're in recovery you shouldn't Drink them, that being, you know, they often taste just like the real thing, and for some people, that would trigger a craving. Oh. For me, it hasn't been the case, and so I would just say to anyone listening: seek advice from your sponsor, speak to other people, and make sure you know that you base those decisions on what works for you. So I find that for me, when I have something like that, I just I feel less like a square peg in a round hole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> And it's just a nice, you know, it it acts as a social lubricant without me having to get messy or be out of my body. And another, you know, another thing is like I go to these events now, social gatherings or whatnot, and the other weekend you will have noticed I just leave early. So... And that's not to say I don't have a great time. For the time that I'm there, it's really amazing. And I'm able to connect with people on such a deeper level now because I'm present, I'm listening, I'm not thinking where am where am I going to get my next drink or drug. And so the time I do have, it's quality over quantity. And so I, yeah, so I'll go, I'll, I'll stay. Once people are starting to be a bit inebriated, starting to repeat <laughs> themselves, you know, I'll just generally head home around that time and go see my puppy. <laughs> um, but yeah, another tool I had early on was I would uh, call my sponsor if at all I was feeling wobbly. I've got family in the program, so I would I would have them, you know, I would let them know where I was going. If they could just make sure they had their phone available in case I needed to speak to them. So yeah, I'm really lucky that I've had a lot of love and support around me in that sense as well but honestly these days yeah it it doesn't bother me at all
1: so interesting and what about the um people who are listening out there who don't really know where to start do you because not everybody can go to rehab as Mm -hmm. I understand um do you suggest that people take the first step by googling something do is the first step um walking into a meeting how do you even like find out of the meetings online but like had what's the first step for somebody interested in in like going on this journey
0: yeah definitely so I think googling is a great idea a lot of um what you can do is you can actually google am I an alcoholic and there's a really great um quiz that you can take um so a lot of people may be surprised when they answer that quiz and then the next thing that I would be doing is I'd be getting to a meeting. So there's things like the AA Times um, and other great resources that will tell you where meetings are. And you just get there. And you just, when you, when you get there, listen, and then make sure you reach out to people at the end. You'll often be asked to identify in a meeting. You'll be asked to um, stand up if it, you're in your first 90 days. And so I just encourage anyone that gets to a meeting that's new, just make sure that you identify so that other older sober members can reach out and wrap their arms around you and, and look after you and carry you through the early days because they're definitely the hardest.
1: Mentioning older, what's the age like gap of people there? Like <laughs> this, uh, So when I say
0: older sober members, <laughs>
1: obviously not like old I
0: mean um, their length of sobriety. <laughs> but in all honesty, it's such a varied and vast – group of people there's people there you know the youngest I've seen is 17 and the oldest I've seen is 85.
1: Oh wow so, but that, that's another thing like one, I actually get the feeling that the younger generation is not maybe drinking as much as like our generation.
0: I think so as well I mean I've heard people reference social media being a real reason for that you know everything's recorded these days you can't get away with as much I think there's just a lot more consciousness around health and well-being as well but in saying that when we go back to the basics of of what this disease is it's alcoholism and alcoholism doesn't discriminate so if you if you carry the gene if you have the disease the likelihood is that you well if you're lucky enough you will find yourself in the rooms one day
1: and are these rooms centered around one certain topic so is, is do you go to a meeting for alcohol do you go to a meeting mm. for narcotics is there also meetings for overeating? Is there meetings for smoking? <laughs> like I don't know. Like yeah, <laughs> you've, you've nailed it. There
0: is. There's narcotics anonymous. There's debtors anonymous. There is OA overeaters anonymous. There's SLA, which is sex and love. So yeah, there's. Um, I think there's over a hundred, um, oh. different fellowships that are all based off the the twelve step recovery program formed by AA.
1: And that twelve step program comes from where does that where does that like originate? Like who was the?
0: So AA was founded by two guys, Bill and Bob, in 1935, and it just started with the two of them. Uh, and one of the things that we talk about is passing on the message. And you know, our primary purpose when we are part of this fellowship is to share the message with other people who um, are new. You know, that we call them the newcomer. It literally started off with these two guys in America and then they started passing the message on and it's grown and grown and grown into what it is today and, you know, it's saved the lives of millions upon millions of people.
1: But I mean, that is a long amount of time. What did you say? The-
0: 1935.
1: Oh my God, I cannot yeah. believe that. Like-
0: I think what's amazing is that so much of what they spoke about then is still so relevant today. And the principles, the traditions, everything that they formulated has held itself in such good stead and it's still practiced today.
1: Okay, so let's let's now jump to another thing about positive habits because a lot of what I hear from you and what we talk about when we chat is how, you know, this has changed your life in a very, very positive way from exercise to meditation. So if you had to pack a bag and your little like toolbox bag, I don't really know what we're going to call it. We'll find a name for it later. (laughs) If you're going to pack this bag, what are the five tools or techniques or things that you would put into this bag that are essential to your now recovered life?
0: This is a really good question. I'm glad. Okay. I would pack meetings. One. I would pack meditation. Two. Can I have meditation and prayer together? <laughs> yeah, you can. <laughs> okay. I'll allow that.
1: Only because you explained to me beforehand what it meant and that it goes together. Great. So <laughs> Okay. Meetings,
0: meditation and prayer, yoga, connecting with other alcoholics and addicts, people in recovery, and therapy.
1: Therapy. I'm glad you brought that up. Do you still go? How often do you go? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well,
1: Because I know you've been in therapy like for a long time. And yeah, I just didn't think you were still going. I, I didn't know that actually. I'm very surprised.
0: Yeah. So the way I look at therapy is you take your car to the mechanic to get service, right? You go to therapy to service your brain. When you are running rough, then I would recommend that you do therapy more frequently. For me in my current state, my maintenance, what that looks like is uh, once a month. I um, have an hour with my therapist. So my therapist that I see is the same woman that I met in rehab. So when I was at South Pacific Private, um, I had a group therapist where I did all of my primary work. But in the third and final week Of my time there I was put into a different program called Changes and the Changes program is specifically designed for people who've experienced childhood trauma who need to do more targeted somatic work which is somatic therapy is more full body work where you you do a lot of work in your past and and you can bring different people in and you hand over a lot of the things that you're you know, that you're carrying energetically so that you can move on and heal. Uh, so my therapist for changes was a woman called Dai Young and she changed my life. You know, she she saved my life in many ways and when I came out of South Pacific, I reached out to her and I asked if she would see me as a patient and, or as a client and um, she said yes. And so, you know, when I first left, I was probably seeing her... Uh, weekly and then that moved to fortnightly and yeah for the past six months I'd say we've been on that on that monthly check-in but
1: do you talk about your recovery there or do you do you talk about your alcohol addiction or do you talk with because that's what you have the meetings for right so
0: exactly um, right yeah no it's actually very rare that Di and I would talk about recovery
1: okay so she's more of like everything else outside of that world
0: Look, she understands what it's like to have an alcoholic mind. And a lot of the time, as I said, like alcohol was the solution to my alcoholism. So the alcoholism was the restless, irritable and discontentedness that I lived with day in and day out. It was this dis-ease that lived within my body that I treated with alcohol. I drank alcohol to feel what your baseline normal is. If that makes sense. Totally. So die really understands that, and um, so often when I take things to her now, it will still be driven by my alcoholic thinking. There are like like alcoholism is the disease of more. Like you always want more. You're never satisfied. You're chasing, chasing, chasing. Whether that be job, relationship, like it can you can play out in so many ways, and so she will be able to understand my thinking and help me. But then because she knows so much about my childhood um, and what I experienced there, she's also able to put a lens and help me understand perhaps why certain things were triggering or why I'm reacting to things in a certain way. And she's able to help me understand it with that lens, which then enables me to move forward and move through it.
1: I'm so happy to hear that... um Therapy has still here has no stigma because there are some parts of the world, especially I can re- reference Germany, where therapy is still like a taboo thing. I and mean, mm. I don't understand why. When it's so interesting, that you get so much out of it. Like you, just all your words, how you've always spoken about it. It's, such, it's a fantastic tool, perfect thing to put in your bag. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's <laughs>
0: definitely coming with me. Um,
1: and, and you also mentioned in your bag is yoga. Yeah. So, tell me about your new love for yoga.
0: (laughs) So, and how
1: important is exercise in general?
0: Oh my gosh, exercise. When when I was in rehab, we weren't allowed to to leave the the hospital, but they would take us on a walk twice a day along the beach in uh, Northern Sydney. You know, just physiologically, endorphins, getting your blood pumping, the oxygen moving through your body, all of that is so super important. But what I also think with exercise is it's about finding what works for you. It's not a one-size-fits-all. For some people, that will be gentle walking. For other people, it'll be high-intensity interval training. But I think when it comes to exercising for your mental health, anything is better than nothing so you just start with baby steps if it's something that you're not um, used to or comfortable with you just you just start like you know it, that might be a five minute walk around the block and then you know the next week you you move it up to 10 and then from there you know you, you, you grow and grow but I just think you've got to be moving your body to ensure that your mental health is is fit and healthy as well I had been doing yoga on and off dipping my toe in before I got sober it's funny you know Before I gave up alcohol, towards the end, in that pre-contemplation stage, I was looking for anything to fix the problem. I was prepared to do anything if it meant I didn't have to give up alcohol. And so I was doing a little bit of yoga at the time, but my addiction was so rampant that I was basically just doing these restorative classes. And even then, I would go and I would have alcohol in my system. yeah like that's how like towards the end it was just getting so crazy like i wasn't wasted but i had liquor in my system yeah it's crazy and then i would wonder why it like wasn't like i wasn't getting the spiritual connection and the energy shift (laughs) that i needed oh my god i so going back to your question now that i'm able to connect with myself and be present a lot more I honestly find that yoga is an extension of this connection to my higher power and this connection to self. It's a, quite a profound feeling when you really feel into it.
1: And don't, please don't take this the wrong way, but you, I think a lot of people turn to yoga when they go through like a recovery process or maybe that's just like something that I imagine myself, but I feel like that that is a quite a normal thing when people... Uh, you know a starting exercise and have gone through a process why is why is yoga the go-to uh, sport because of that spiritual side of things mm,
0: exactly so when I started my journey into yoga through recovery I had no idea that there would be so many similarities between 12-step fellowship and the principles of yoga. And as I've gone further into this journey and I've completed my yoga teacher training, what I've come to realise is the reason that the principles of yoga align so closely with those of recovery is that it's all about cultivating an awareness of mind, opening up your heart and having this expansion of consciousness. Whether we're doing that through the 12 steps and doing the inner work or whether we're doing that through living these principles of yoga. You know, one of the things that really took me by surprise when I first delved into this more deeply was that the physical postures that we as Westerners identify as yoga, that's actually only one component of what's called the eight limbs of yoga. So the eight limbs of yoga are really what you need to embody to, to live your life as a yogi and you know they're things like they've got the yamas which are the five moral restraints and so within that you've got things like ahimsa which is non-violence satya which is all about truthfulness or honesty which in AA, is you know, it's a program of honesty. It's that's one of the core fundamental parts of the program. Uh, there's things like Brahmacharya, which is moderation, and aparigraha, which is non-hoarding and generosity. And um, again, that all aligns really closely with with twelve step fellowship. And then you've got things like the niyamas, which is where you practice gratitude and contentment, which is santosha. You've got tapas, which is all about self-discipline or svadhyaya, which is all about self-study. And the, the big one um, is that the, in yoga, there is also this really important direction towards devotion to a higher power and this idea of surrender so again uh, there's just so many similarities between yoga and the fundamentals principles of yoga and recovery which is I think why so many people that take this path of recovery find themselves leaning into and discovering the beauty of yoga as well.
1: All right, so I have another question for you. If I was having a bad day and my motivation was pretty low, my energy was pretty low, what would you advice? Would you give to me in order to get out of this funk or rut?
0: Mm. So, one of the things that I've learned is to actually honor feelings as they come up. So, in the past, I would drink on any kind of feeling really, happy feeling, celebration, sad feeling, disappointment, grief. I would drink on anything. The point is I didn't let myself feel. And so what I've learned to do now is to sit in my feelings because you can't drink or smoke or fuck or cheat anything really away if you want to be able to process it and and grow from it, you actually have to sit in the shit. And sometimes <laughs> that's really uncomfortable. And even in the past 12 months, like I've hit some speed bumps. I've had days that have totally KO'd me, knocked me for six. I've been floored. But whereas in the past I would go to something to shift that feeling What I do now is I practice self-care. And so what that looks like for me a lot of the time is I will allow the emotions and the wave to wash over me. I'll then go into my tool bag and I'll pull out meditation. I'll pray. I'll call somebody generally for me, it's another sober member who understands how my brain works and is able to maybe share some of the experience that they've had, similar or otherwise. As we just spoke about, I'll get myself moving, but not necessarily that day. You know, sometimes like, uh, like you can be feeling like shit and someone's like, just go out for a walk. And you're like, I don't want to. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like sometimes... It's For me, it's this idea of non-attachment. Don't be attached to the thoughts and the feelings. They are just thoughts and feelings and you are not your thoughts and feelings. But at the same time, sometimes they're coming up because they're trying to send you a message or they're trying to tell you something. And I think it's really important to be able to slow down and tune into that. So yeah, my first bit of advice would be to actually honour what's coming up. If that's consistent day after day, then then yeah, like oh, it's important that you reach out, that you that you look after yourself, that you practice self-care and, and and what that means for you. But um, definitely brand meditation are huge when I'm in those moments just to help me stay present and also hand it over.
1: Are you also very focused on these topics now? Like does this consume your world? Like it what, for example, what was the last book that you read? Is it, a, you know, a recovery like book, or is it? Do you also read? Have you reread really Harry Potter or something?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, look, I'm I'm pretty into it. I'm reading a lot of Pia Melody's stuff at the moment. I'm a huge fan of her work, and I just find that I'm drawn to that. I've been reading quite a few books that are related to yoga at the moment, obviously doing my teacher training. The Surrender Experiment is an incredible book. One of my dad's favorite books, The Happiness Trap, which is actually sort of aligned to what we were just talking about earlier with, you know, you're not your thoughts and feelings. But yeah, I definitely do find that I'm naturally drawn towards books that are around recovery personal development and that sort of thing I do however try and throw in some sort of fiction every now and then just to just to lighten the mood a little <laughs> you got it, definitely I'm Good not Roman. sure if it's Harry Potter though but
1: <laughs> don't rack on Harry Potter hey, I love Harry Potter I love Harry Potter Happening okay. Uh, thank you so much for having me and letting me ask some questions to kind of clear up my confusion. Oh, it's a pleasure <laughs> on recovery, and they were a little bit silly, I think, at times, but you know, there's no such thing as stupid questions. But I think now um, we should take your toolkit
0: and wrap it up. What do you say? You can borrow my toolkit anytime, Georgia. Thank <laughs> you so much for being here today. I've loved the questions. I think it's so important that we continue talking about these topics if we're ever to remove the stigma that still surrounds addiction and mental health. I truly believe that when we recover loudly, nobody needs suffer in silence. So I can't thank you enough for the questions and to the wider community. Keep the questions coming in. I will do another AMA episode further in the future. You can contact me on Instagram at ashbutters with a double S or I will put my contact details in the show notes as well. For now, Georgia, it's been real. I can't thank you enough and... We'll have to do this when you are back in the country next time.
1: Definitely next time I'm in the country. Thanks, Ash.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Georgia.